Children are dismissed at this time for their children's programs. You guys can head off. A couple of months uh, back, we just let you know uh, about how we were doing as a church in regards to our finances. Uh, we run our church on a fiscal year that goes from September to August, and so we just wrapped up our fiscal year as a church. And it's, uh, to run this particular church here is about a million dollars a year. A lot of things that uh, we support. We've got a number of missionaries that we support, and then the staff, and the building, and the facilities. Uh, we mentioned to you that our property taxes just in the last two years doubled. Um, the things that we take for granted, like the toilet paper, and the bathrooms, and the electricity, um, all of these things, the reaching out into our community, all take uh, money, obviously, to run. And we are encouraged in Scripture also so that we are not tied to material things to be regularly giving to the Lord. And we do that by giving to our local church. And so I mentioned a couple of months ago that uh, this year we were looking at being about 70000 short in our giving. And we just wanted to challenge people in regards to how much they gave to maybe look at challenging themselves to step out and uh, more faith and maybe give some more or new people to the church to begin giving. And when the whole year came to an end, Christine told me uh, this week that we ended up coming $10,000 ahead. So I just wanted to thank you. And I, I was curious, I, I don't know what anybody gives, but I was curious and I asked Christine, I did, I, and I said, I don't want to know the name, but did somebody just give a large donation to try to help uh, us out? And she said, no. Uh, and I was actually uh, excited to hear that because she said what it actually means is that everybody just started giving more. Uh, and uh, that is a very positive sign too. And we just want to continue to encourage you to give, not only to your local church, but to the, the Lord as well. Well, around 3,000 years ago, Solomon became the king of Israel after his father David. Then Rehoboam followed Solomon, as we saw last week, and it was under Rehoboam's reign that the kingdom split in two, the north and the south, and they split because of Rehoboam's inability to try to get people to work together and to try to ease the load that Solomon put upon his people. And after 17 years of reigning, then Rehoboam's son, Abijah, became king for three years. After Abijah reigned for only three years, Asa took the throne for the next 41 years. Now, isn't that a riveting introduction to a sermon that just makes you say, tell me more? Well, we are going to look at Asa today, the fifth king of Israel, the third king of Judah, because the kingdom split under Rehoboam, and we are going to look at Asa today and what the scripture has to say to us through him. Now, when we look at Asa, his life and his reign starts with glowing reviews. The First thing we read about him is that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. I can't think of a better epitaph on my tombstone than something like that. To have on your tombstone your name and then it's simply saying did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
right from the beginning of his reign, Asa set out to reform the people. See, under Rehoboam's 17-year reign, most of it, he was not following the Lord with his whole heart. Uh, Under his son's three-year reign, he did not follow the Lord as well. So Judah had just come from 20 years of not following the Lord. Asa now comes to the throne, and after 20 years of not following the Lord, things were about to change. Just as sometimes sons can rebel against their fathers in a negative way, sometimes sons rebel against their father in a positive way. Sometimes their fathers are not godly fathers, and they rebel by becoming godly children. And this is what happened with Asa. So when Asa becomes king, he immediately sets out to reform the nation. And he starts by removing the altars to the pagan gods. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, this is what we read at the beginning of his reign. Verse 3. It says that Asa removed the foreign altars, he removed the pagan shrines, he smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah poles, he commanded the people of Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his law and his commands. Asa also removed the pagan shrines, as well as the incense altars, and every one of them in Judah's towns. So Asa's kingdom enjoyed a period of peace. During those peaceful years, he was able to build up the fortified towns throughout Judah. No one tried to make war against him at this time, for the Lord was giving him rest from his enemies. Asa told the people of Judah, Let us build towns and fortify them with walls, towers, and gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord our God, and he has given us peace on every side. So they went ahead with these projects, and they brought them to completion. You can see that Asa started his reign for the first decade with a real reform back to the king of Israel, the true king, and that is the Lord their God. Asa knew that though he was in a kingly role, he was bringing his people back to their almighty king, God, Yahweh. But in the 11th year of Asa's reign, Zerah the Ethiopian decided to make war on him. Now, Zerah's army, the Bible says, was a mass threat to Judah. Depending on the translation that you read, the NIV calls it a vast army. The King James says it was an army of thousands upon thousands. The New Living Translation says the army was a million strong. Now, obviously, these are all exaggerations because if the army was a million strong, it would be the same size as the American army today, which was just not the size of these little kingdoms in the Middle East around that time. But what it's trying to say in these exaggerated words is that there was a vast army attacking Judah, and Asa's army was half the size. Not only was it half the size, it said that unlike the army that was coming against them, Asa's army had no chariots. So this would be like today having no tanks. 
So you have an army coming that's double the size of you, and it's got tanks and airplanes and everything. Your army's half the size, and you don't have any of the weapons of modern warfare. And so what does Asa do? It says, immediately he went to the Lord and he prayed. O Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God. We trust in you alone. It is in your name that we have come against this vast horde, he calls them. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere men prevail against you. And in answer to Asa's prayer, we read that the Lord struck down the vast army that was approaching them. And as way of affirmation, the prophet Azariah tells Asa that the Lord is with you because you are with him. And then he says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Hearing these words from the prophet, King Asa intensifies his reform in Judah, calling all the people to enter into a covenant relationship with God. And it says that many people did, and not just did ritual. It says they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers. And here is this line that was missing in Rehoboam's life. They came to seek the God of their fathers with all their heart, and soul. In fact, one could even argue that Asa went a little overboard in his calling the people back to reform by denying people what today we would recognize as basic human rights. In a verse that I find quite disturbing every time that I read it, it says that all who would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, under Asa were to be put to death, whether great or small, man or woman. In any event, the hearts and souls of many of the people were won back to God. And the eyes of the Lord, which reigns throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him, blessed Asa with another 20 years of peace. So under Asa, we have this period of prosperity, 30 years essentially of peace. 10 years of peace and then a big mass army attacking them, but the Lord intervenes because of the king's fervent prayer, followed by another 20 years of peace. It says they sought God eagerly, and he was found by them. And so the Lord gave them rest on every side. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Asa even deposed his own grandmother, Maka, from her position as queen mother because of her ongoing pagan practices, and this despite the fact that she was Rehoboam's favorite wife. But now as Asa enters his senior years, this is where I find the story <coughs> to get confusing. Especially after the verse that says, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Because something doesn't add up. The 20 years of peace comes to an end. So after 30 years of Asa's reign, the 20 years of peace comes to an end with a threat from Basha, king of Israel. 
Remember, Israel and Judah had split. And so this now is an attack from, in a sense, their brother nation. And after all of Asa's reforms, 30 years of covenant commitment to God, after winning a war 20 years earlier through fervent prayer against a vast army that was going to attack them, now when a significantly smaller army from Israel comes, Asa does not seek God's help. In fact, what he does is he goes to Ben-Hadon, the king of Aram, and asks him for help. And Asa is successful with this alliance. He's successful and he wins the battle against Israel. But he's confronted afterwards by a prophet by the name of Haniah. And Haniah comes to him and it's 2 Chronicles 16, 7. At that time, Haniah the seer came to King Asa and told him, Because you have put your trust in the king of Aram, instead of the Lord your God, you missed your chance to destroy the army of the king of Aram. Don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians and the Libyans and the vast army with all their chariots and charioteers? At that time, you relied on the Lord, and he handed them over to you. The eyes of the Lord searched the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts have been fully committed to him. What a fool you have been. And from now on, you will be at war. And unfortunately, after 30 years of following the Lord... Confronted by this prophet, we do not see a softening, repentant heart in Asa. It's amazing to me. You can follow the Lord for 30 years, and it doesn't necessarily mean in a new situation, if you are not continuing to stay true to God, that you will keep a heart that's soft. Instead of, hard, instead of softening his heart and repenting, instead what we see in Asa is a hardening of heart even to the point of cruelty. Asa was angry with the seer. Because of this, he was so enraged that he put him in prison. And at the same time, and now note this, and at the same time Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. Remember how when Asa was following the Lord and we read about him killing all of those people who wouldn't follow the Lord? You need to always be wary of leaders like that. Even if their killing seems to be on our side, yeah, get rid of those pagans. That kind of an attitude can so easily flip When alliances change and the brutality comes back upon you. The brutality with which Asa oppressed some of the people during the revivals is now the same spirit in which he is now brutally oppressing the followers of God. And so one should never be too quick to rejoice on the persecution of others, even if it favors you. For when the mood changes, and it will, 
Sometimes under the same leader in the same governmental system, it will come back upon you. All you have to do is read Ken Follett's uh, great new novel, A Column of Fire, about Europe in the 1500s, during the time of Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth and King Stuart and Henry VIII and all that, to see how quickly the tides change back and forth and the very persecution that went towards your enemies is all of a sudden coming back upon you. The last scene of Asa's life is a sad depiction of a man who's growing old, angry, bitter. Refusing to admit his wrong and relying on others rather than God against his war on Israel, Asa continues in his stubborn defiance even to the point of being petty. We then read in the 39th year of his reign, remember he lived to 41, or he had a 41 year reign, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a serious foot disease. Yet even with the severity of his disease, he did not seek the Lord's help but turned only to physicians. After two years, Asa eventually dies. Maybe the foot disease spread throughout the rest of his body. And after 41 years of reigning, he comes to his death, he comes to an end, and is honored by the people. So in light of all of this, what do we do with a passage of Scripture that says... 2 Chronicles 15, 17, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. When he obviously wasn't. For 30 years of his reign, he certainly was. But then he started relying on other means rather than God. And not only did he not repent when the prophet confronted him, but then when he even had some, it was almost like he was going to make sure he didn't repent because even then when he developed this foot disease, it was like he made a statement, I will only go to the doctors and not go to this God. Well, I admit to being as confused as you on how to read that particular verse. Obviously, the dominant direction of Asa's life was one that was fully committed to the Lord. But the last years of Asa's life are a sad but all too familiar tale of people. See, Asa never renounced his faith. Asa never completely abandoned his faith. Instead, what happened is Asa became angry at God. He became angry, obviously, at God's people as well. He hardened his heart and he refused to repent. In fact, his foot disease maybe was even a direct result of his unrepentance. I don't know, but we certainly do know that a lot of times physical illnesses are the result of a hardened heart. Are the result sometimes of spiritual and psychological issues that begin to manifest themselves in physical ways. If you've been following the Christian tabloids lately, you've probably by now heard the news of Bill Hybels. For more than 40 years, Hybels pastored one of the largest churches in America and influenced numerous pastors, including myself. 
even writing books on integrity like who you are when no one's looking. And yet, after numerous accusations from female employees and congregants of groping, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, many that the board knew about for years and just kept suppressed, Hybels, just a few months back, uh, has abruptly resigned from his position. After several years of ministry and the founding of the hyper-conservative Institute of Christian Life, Bill Gothard was finally disciplined by his own board for harassing and being inappropriate with as many as 34 women who worked for him. And if we flip to the Catholic side of things, once again, we are hearing in the news of several priests, this time over 300 in Pennsylvania, involved in the sexual abuse of children. To be honest, it's a very embarrassing time to be a Christian. You can understand the skepticism that many people have towards the church and to the things of God. Like Asa, why is it that so many Christians do not finish their journey well? I think one reason we secretly enjoy these scandals is because they can take the light off of ourselves. We can step back a bit and say, well, at least I'm not having an affair, or at least I'm not molesting children like those guys are. It becomes a bit of self-justification. But really, we're not off the hook. Maybe we haven't done those sins, but why do many of Jesus' followers still end their days angry, Negative, rude, divisive, opinionated, hard, unforgiving. And when I was working on this message this week, uh, this is as much was speaking to me as anything. Sometimes I have to step back and say, is my faith, is my practice of my religion making me a better person or a worse person? Is my Christianity just making me a harder person, a more negative person, a more unloving person, a more judgmental person, a more opinionated person? Because if that's the case, I don't want to grow up and be like that. Why does this happen so often? Aren't we supposed to grow in maturity? When Paul writes in Galatians, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. And many of us put the period right there. That's where we stop. And then we can condemn the Hybelses. Say, yeah, those terrible sexual sins. And we forget to read on because the same passage of Scripture, in fact, the same sentence goes on to say, when you follow your sinful desires, like those sexual ones, but it goes on to say, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division. And if those are the things of the sinful nature... 
Shouldn't they become increasingly less as we get older? I've kind of said sometimes, um, half joking, half true, that once in a while I have people that come to me and they say, you know, Steph, you're harder on the seniors than you are on the youth. And I say, duh, because when you're older, you're supposed to be more mature. That's just scriptural. The standards for people that have walked with Jesus for 60 years are a lot higher than the standards of people who have walked with Jesus for three years. Especially when Paul ends with such a strong warning and says, let me tell you again, after he lists this list, as I have before, that anyone living in this sort of way will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's sobering as I'm getting older. I find Asa's story to be a haunting warning in my own life. A warning that I cannot live on my past faith. I cannot live on the fact that, well, when I was 23, I was zealous for Jesus. Well, good for you when you were 23. You're 44 now. Or, I had 30 good years of faithfulness to God. Well, good for you, but that was in the past. We cannot live in the past. Or to think that my faith would be so much stronger if I could just go back to that time. Instead, our faith needs to be a living reality in today. In each new future day in growing maturity. Which means as the world changes, as new things happen, how do I, with my faith, react to it? Am I modeling to the younger generation faith, hope, and love in the situation of the things of the world? Or do I model fear and cocooning? How am I passing it on? Each and every day must be committed to Christ. We cannot live on the past. We cannot even live on past miracles. Remember the vast army that Asa prayed about and that God intervened? Well, that miracle that God did 20 years earlier, there was no advantage, no help when the next battle came. My faith today cannot depend on a miracle that happened 20 years ago. Because that's no guarantee for today. Today is a new day. Someone can follow God for most of their life and yet end their days still spiteful, stubborn, and resentful at God, resentful at others. It happens all the time. It's why Jesus warned us about this when he told the story of the prodigal son. Again, one of those stories where we put the period too early with the son that ran away and came home and we forget the real ending of the story and that's the elder brother who stood outside and was, oh, I'm not going to that party. That loser son of yours that came home. We can develop an older brother attitude if we're not careful. How does this happen? I guess that's the real question, and how do we avoid it? How do we avoid a faithful Asa life 
that turns negative at the end. Well, allow me to give you a few reasons why I believe things like this happen. And, and with it, hopefully some things we can practice to try to make sure that they don't happen in our life. And the first is we end our life poorly when we fear the world more than we fear God. As we grow older, we can become more and more fearful of the things around us. There was a time when we understood things. But politics change, technology changes, attitudes change, fashion changes, and a fear can creep up. I think one of the worst habits older people fall into is watching the news too much. It's a bad habit. Get out into your communities and make the news. Don't sit on your couch and watch it. All that does is breed fear. Most situations, things that you can't even do anything about anyway. And we grow afraid. And when we grow afraid, we begin to become interested in mainly our safety. Rather than taking risks for the future. For generations that will follow us even when we are no longer here. Remember the ten spies? who went into the promised land and came back and said, oh, it's too scary. I walked into the promised land, I turned on CNN, and it's freaky. I don't, we, we can't go into that world. We go into that world, we're going to lose. And yet there was Joshua and Caleb that said, we got God on our side, we can take that, let's do it. And even though Joshua and Caleb were not going to live forever and what they would bequeath would go on to future generations, it's that kind of attitude that we need to bequeath to future generations. That you guys can do it. With God on your side, you can face anything. Not, oh, I don't know. I worry about you guys. Things are getting horrible. I wouldn't want to be a young person today. Whew, I don't know how you're going to get through this. I don't, well, what does that tell our young people? And what does that tell them about your faith in God? Don't you have God on your side? Why are you so afraid? When we grow afraid, we cocoon. Because Asa became afraid of the king of Israel, he relied on God's he relied on human help rather than God's. And it's ironic because when his faith was younger and the army was a lot more vast, yes, he was afraid as well, but he went to God and he knew that with God we can conquer. So even though the army in the future was a smaller army, somehow in his older age, he began to fear. And even though we saw God work in the past, now it was, I don't know if God's going to pull through. Maybe I should make an alliance with a pagan king. Every new day needs to be stepped into as an adventure. That when we step into the new day is when the river stops flowing. Yes, it looks like a scary river, the Jordan, to cross over, but you got to step into it for it to stop flowing. Whenever we let the fear of people or the fear of the world overshadow proper fear, which is a fear of God, we become self-focused and we live anxious lives. And we end our days like Asa. How many of us as we age become more angry at our political leaders? 
because we've forgotten to fear God and we're fearing people instead. We fear for the future when we look at the up-and-coming generation. But how about we fear God, not people? We fear our increased physical disabilities, our spouse's increased physical disabilities. How about fearing God, not people? We fear the decay of the church. Let's fear God and not people. We fear for our children's salvation when we should be fearing God and not people. We fear our death when we should be fearing God and not people. We fear loneliness when we should be fearing God and not people. We fear for our financial situation when we should be fearing God and not people. Remembering who we follow. A God who has revealed himself to us today in a greater way than he ever did in Asa's day. A God who, through whom Jesus said to his disciples, I am leaving you with a gift. And what the gift is, and do, have we received this gift from Jesus? Jesus says, I'm leaving you with a gift. The gift I'm leaving you is peace of mind and heart. That is one of the signs of maturity. Peace of mind and heart. Jesus says, I'm giving that to you as a gift. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. That is one of the key differences between those who are following Jesus and those who are not. Because it is not a gift the world can give. The world cannot give the gift of peace of heart and mind. That's why Billy Graham's classic book was called Peace with God. Do we, have we found peace? And if we have found peace, even in the midst of chaos, like Jesus sleeping in the boat when it was a storm all around him, we're not troubled or afraid. Secondly, we end our life poorly when we refuse to acknowledge that we're wrong. And that what kind of goes with this one is also that we end our life poorly when we refuse to forgive. And Note this, when we refuse to give ourselves and others. Some of us get bound in a lack of forgiveness for ourselves for wrongs once done. The older we get, the harder it is to admit that we're wrong. And the harder it is to allow other people to be wrong. Since we have more experience, we feel that this automatically makes us right. But as Paul said, even if we are left unchecked, increased knowledge and experience puffs up rather than softens. Knowledge in and of itself merely puffs up and makes you arrogant. It's love which builds up. When the prophet confronted Asa with his wrong of hardening his heart and relying on a pagan king, what did Asa do? He hardened his heart. Why? I mean, he'd been a king at that point for a number of years. He was getting into his senior years. Who knows? Maybe the prophet that confronted, God often works this way, maybe the prophet that confronted Asa was like a young 17-year-old or something. And so Asa's like, do you know who you're talking to? I'm the king. 
Do you know who you're talking to? I've been running this country for 30 years. I'm in my 60s, you young punk 17-year-old. Who do you think you are coming and telling me that I shouldn't have done it this way? And so the king hardened his heart. Prophet was probably some young idealistic guy without life experience anyway. And yet all the while, we watch people time and time again waste away all the time holding on to being right. Lying on their deathbed, estranged from their children, estranged from spouses, estranged from friends. All alone, they slip into eternity, but they were right. I've seen it as a pastor, surprisingly how many times people, after 50 years of marriage, get divorced, go to court, fight after vast amounts of monies, Even if they split it both ways, it would be more than enough for both of them to live on forever. And yet they fight and they fight and they bitter and they get so hard towards each other, both refusing to ever acknowledge anything. It's a sad way to die. Asa's early years of faith did not end well because of his fear of his enemies and because of his inability to admit that he was wrong. Asa, still recorded as a good king. He still got that epitaph on his tombstone that said, Asa served the Lord faithfully all of his life. What do we do with that? Well, on the one hand, that's called grace. God's grace extended to us. And maybe it's also a little bit of flowery funeral language. You know how at funerals you kind of gloss over the bad stuff and you only say the good stuff? I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that going on. But how much better would it have been for Asa if he would have humbled himself, sought the Lord in his senior years as he did in his younger years? As the writer of Ecclesiastes put it, finishing is better than starting. So how do we grow old and finish well? Here's where I'll give you a few practical things you could maybe try. Sometimes we can diagnose the root of our problem because there can be different things for all of us that begin to erode our personhood. And so sometimes we can look at the symptoms to try to manifest where the problem is. If we find ourselves, as we get older, becoming increasingly negative... Usually, that is rooted in fear. And so we can begin to say, if that's the symptoms, I'm becoming increasingly negative, we can step back and say, what are the fears? If we find ourselves, as we're growing older, becoming increasingly arrogant, uh, then that is rooted in a thinking that we are always right. It's an insecurity. Why in my older years am I finding that I'm so argumentative, always having to be right? Where, what is that insecurity? Why do I have that insecurity? And if we find ourselves becoming increasingly bitter, then we need to step back and say, that's probably rooted in some unforgiveness somewhere. 
Who is it that I'm holding on to refusing to forgive? And it, like I said, it could be ourselves. Maybe there's this harshness towards yourself that you just are not allowing yourself to be forgiven by God like he intends you to be forgiven. But if there's no place for negativity, arrogance, and bitterness in a mature Christian, then how do we fight against these things as we grow old? Well, fortunately, God has given us three gifts of grace that we can utilize as spiritual disciplines to counter each one of these. For negativity, if that's the direction you find yourself going as you are getting older, God has gifted you with a larger church community. God has gifted you with a larger Christian community that is also filled with positive people and young people. And we need to spend time and grow in order to grow with the positive people in the church and with the young people in the church. If you find yourself only hanging around with people that are just like you, it's just going to feed the negativity. That's also why I uh, think there's something very unhealthy with churches that have everybody in them that are exactly the same. It's so specifically targeted that they target one little age group. The diversity of the true church of God, of people uh, that have all different kinds of temperaments and at different stages of life, and that can be so beneficial to our spiritual health if we partake in the body. Not a subgroup of the body, but partake of the body. How wonderful it would it be to just simple things like Taking somebody that's younger out for coffee. Just listening. Not having all the answers, but just saying, tell me what school's like nowadays. What are your favorite courses? What kind of thing? What are your dreams? Where, where are you at in your faith? What are the, some of the questions that you struggle with in regards to your faith? Just showing an interest. Finding people in the church that are positive and being around those people. God has given you that gift, but you need to utilize it. For those of you that find that as you're getting older, you just seem to be becoming increasingly arrogant, just know everything, well, God has given you a wonderful gift of something called school, and seminaries, and professors, and universities, and books that look at things from different perspectives. And we need to utilize... Those tools so that we keep on learning and growing. I've mentioned before, as a, as a senior, you can basically get free education at the University of BC. I, I, I never understand why we don't utilize that. You don't have to do those assignments or anything. Just go to classes. There's even community uh, workshops and classes that you can go to. Expand your understanding of things. Because as you do, you will begin to realize you don't actually know a whole lot. Which is a wonderful thing about education. It humbles you. 
It makes you realize that, oh, there are more perspectives than just the perspective that I've come from. See, some of us that have even grown up and we've only been in one denomination and we begin to realize, wow, there are strong Bible-believing evangelical Christians that actually take a different position on some of these biblical doctrines that I've held to. Wow! These things humble us. Take advantage. Those of us that as we are getting older find that there's this increasing bitterness that is coming into our heart. God has given you the gift of not taking away all of your sin and temptation. Martin Luther has this one line that is just wonderful that I always recall where he says, um, prayer, study, and temptation make the preacher. It's a reminder of the fact that in a weird kind of way, some of the temptations and the struggles that we continue to to struggle personally with in our own sin life is a weird kind of grace. Because it reminds us day in and day out that I am still just a sinner saved by the grace of God like everybody else. And it takes away that hardened, Bitterness towards myself and towards others, thinking that everybody needs to shape up like me. Like the Pharisee that prayed, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. When we remember, I still am like that sinner over there. There's maturity in that. Rather than negativity, arrogance, and bitterness... The Christian virtues are hope, humility, and grace. When we hang around the positive people in the church and the younger people, we begin to work against negativity and we begin to experience hope. When we begin to continually learn and educate and read and study and stretch ourselves, instead of becoming arrogant, We become more humble. And when we realize that we still got issues that we're working through probably to our dying day. And that we need to forgive ourselves and show forgiveness to others. Instead of becoming bitter, we grow in grace. Grace towards others and grace towards ourselves. Instead of being Galatians 5.20 people, hostile, quarreling, jealous, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension and division, we become Galatians 5.22 people, just two verses later, which says that we become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the kind of person I want to grow to be. And if faith in Christ does not move me towards that, then I might as well chuck it. Because we are meant to grow in Christ-likeness. How does one grow that? Paul goes on to say, it's the Holy Spirit who produces this fruit in our life. As we step into the water, as we take some of those risks that might not be so comfortable for us, connecting with back to school or with younger people, forgiving ourselves, all those kind of things, as we step into the water and take those risks, 
the Holy Spirit produces the fruit in us. Our job is to simply be obedient and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. I'm going to pray a beautiful prayer from Thomas Akempis. A guy lived in the 1400s. Imitation of Christ is his classic book. This is from another one of his books, but just a beautiful prayer that I bring to God for my own life, and I pray it for each of you as well, and I hope that you pray this, and it's your desire also. Let's bow our heads. Lord, may I continue to praise you. If I live to a hundred, I'll still slave for you as though it were the first hour of the first day my heart was warmed by yours and I decided to follow you. Now at midlife, Lord, I still trip up from time to time, but I won't despair and I won't abandon you. I bend my knees of my heart with much contrition and tears by offering you my bruised and battered conscience. Mend it, Lord. Make it well by applying your grace to the sight of the wound. I made a good start, and I fall every now and then, but that's not going to keep me off the track for long. With your grace, I'm in this race for the long haul. Funny thing, though, you created me out of nothing, even though you knew right from the start that I was going to fall on my face, not once, but many times. And yet you forgave all of my sins. The ones I committed and the ones I omitted. You restored what had been destroyed. You healed what had been bruised. You brushed off the dirt. You lightened up the shadows. You dampened down the swollen. You rekindled the extinct. You built, rebuilt the ruined. You rescued the neglected. You aligned the crooked. You smoothed the rough. You restricted the curious. You herded the wanderers. And you ordered the disordered. All the faithful Christians in every people and tribe and language and nation who went before us right up to this day and all who will come after us, may they too celebrate and join choirs to sing the sweetest and most glorious name of Jesus Christ. That's the name to be eternally blessed beyond all other names. On behalf of the one and all, may glory be to you, Holy Trinity, one deity from the beginning to now to the end. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.